Revelation chapter 16. Let's read the passage first and then, and then we'll go through it. Beginning in verse number 10 to the end of the chapter. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gather the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. 
God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. In this chapter, we have described the seven bowls of God's wrath. And as we have seen, the bowls represent a, or are represented in a covenant context. That's why uh, God, through John, uses the image of the bowl. If you remember, in the establishing of the first covenant, that part of the blood was kept in bowls and then sprinkled on the people. And then within the sacrificial system set up by covenant, the bowls of blood were poured in at the bottom of the altar. Thus, when we come to the expressions of God's wrath here in Revelation chapter 16, um, we should not be surprised that the images and the language come from the Old Testament, from the context of the Old Covenant. As we saw last Sunday, we looked at the first four bowls. They deal with the physical realm and can be seen in light of the plagues that God brought on Egypt, as well as covenant blessings and promises made to Israel by God. First of all, just to review, the first bowl was that of ugly and painful sores, similar to the sixth plague on Egypt of boils, but also a connection with the fact that these sores come on those who receive the mark of the beast. And I don't think that the mark of the beast is a physical mark, a literal mark, and neither are the sores, but rather those who would worship the beast are now suffering the consequences of their actions. And the language used is that of plagues on Egypt. The second bowl, the sea turned to blood. This points to the very first plague that was brought on Egypt when the water turned to blood. But there's something different here in that it is only the sea, only salt water. And it refers to maritime uh, commerce. And we will see this again when we come to chapter 18. The third bowl, now this is fresh water, rivers and streams of water. Uh, again, a reference to the first plague on Egypt. But here the issue is not commerce, but life itself. That which sustains life. We cannot live without water. Um, fresh water is necessary for life. Um, and this turns to blood as well. And at this point in the narrative, there is an interruption. Uh, the, the angel in charge of the waters says, You are just in these judgments. You who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. And God's people, represented as the altar, we see that the prayers of the saints come from under the altar, they respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And that is, the judgments match their actions. Those who shed blood will drink blood. In the fourth bowl, the sun scorches. This plague is seen as matching the ninth plague in Egypt, but if you look at the ninth plague, that was total darkness. So, how can you have scorching sun and total darkness? Actually, the fifth bowl, uh, which we, where we will begin today, that is the plague of darkness. I think what is intended here is a reversal of covenant blessings. That is, as God spoke to Israel and said, if you will be faithful to me, these are the things that I will do for you. And we read of God's blessings in the Old Testament in terms of protection from the sun, in terms of shade. Let me read to you, we read this last week, but I think it's just some wonderful passages from Psalm 121. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. 
The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. But in some sense, we don't even have to go to the Old Testament. Here in the book of Revelation itself, in Revelation chapter 7, He who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. But to those who have violated the covenant, those who have broken faith with God, they are now suffering the curses that we see in in Deuteronomy chapter 28. God says, if you keep the covenant, these are the blessings. If you break the covenant, these are the things that will happen to you. And indeed, this is how John describes God's judgment that came on Israel in 70 A.D. Today we come to the last three bulls, and these last three deal with the political realm, the disruption of the kingdom of the beast, the war on the great day of the Lord, and then the fall of Babylon. The fifth bull, described in verses 10 and 11. It's interesting that most of the judgments that we have seen thus far in the book of Revelation deal with the nation of Israel, those who are covenant breakers, those with whom God had a covenant, and now, since they have broken the covenant, they suffer the consequences. But here we have punishment or judgment that goes beyond Israel. Here it goes to the kingdom of the beast. Um, We've seen an unholy trinity here in the book of Revelation. We have the dragon who is Satan. We have the first beast from the sea uh, who represents political authority. And then we have the beast from the land who represents religious authority. But here the fifth bowl is poured out on the throne of the beast. And you might ask, well, which beast? Because there are two, the one from the sea and the one from the land. I think the passage here answers it for us because here we read in verse 13 of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. So the second beast is referred to as the false prophet, religious leadership, religious authority. Here it is the political authority that is being described And the bowl has the effect of plunging the kingdom into darkness. I think that this, of what we study in Revelation, this is an expression that we could embrace and say, well, I get that. That's sort of a common, you know, like somebody turned off the lights and they were plunged into darkness. Um, But I've warned you before that we need to be careful in studying the book of Revelation that we don't somehow give our meaning to the image or to the language, but see what the language and the imagery from the Old Testament has. In the Old Testament, the plunging of kingdoms into darkness is an expression of judgment, of political turmoil because of judgment. And let me read to you two passages, one from Isaiah 13. It is a prophecy against Babylon. Isn't that interesting? Because Jerusalem in this passage is described as Babylon. It also speaks of the day of the Lord, which we are seeing in our passage. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinner within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. In other words, the empire of Babylon, God is going to turn off the light. And then in the book of Ezekiel, we have a prophecy against Egypt. And isn't this interesting? Because Jerusalem has also been described as Egypt uh, as John writes this prophecy. When I snuff you out, God says, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. 
All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you. I will bring darkness over your land, declares the Sovereign Lord. Here in Revelation, the darkness is brought on the kingdom of the beast. Darkness, I think, is wonderful in that it reveals the beast rule for what it is. It is a domain of delusion and confusion. People walking around as though they can see when, in fact, they are in darkness. I think we should also remember what John records Jesus saying, that men love darkness more than light because their deeds are evil. There is no comfort in the darkness of the kingdom of the beast. But here, John is more specific. Yes, it is the kingdom, but more specifically on those who were afflicted by sores. If you look at it, uh, men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And this, we see, is something that is poured out on Israel. So Israel is part of the Roman Empire. Yes, the empire, in a sense, has plunged into darkness, but the people of Israel who have rejected the Christ, they suffer in a specific way. Um, they who have the mark of the beast, they who have worshipped the beast, they are judged again. And we saw in verse number 9 that they curse God, uh, they refuse to repent, they refuse to glorify Him, and again, here, we are told once again that they curse the God of heaven. Four times in this book, or in this chapter, I'm sorry, in this chapter we are told that they curse the God of heaven. And as we've seen, four is the number of Israel. Four times Israel curses God. Rather than repenting, rather than saying, you know, somebody more powerful than us is doing this to us, we should probably make amends or somehow be reconciled. Instead, they curse the God of heaven. And it's interesting how John puts it because they're gnawing their tongues and at the same time they're cursing. Again, I don't think John is being literal, but if you would try to go home today and gnaw on your tongue and talk at the same time, I think it's rather difficult. But the point is this, in the midst of what should be devastating pain, they still have the effort to curse God. They have broken the covenant. They do not want to be reconciled to God. By the way, we also see at this point that the fifth and the first bowls, we shouldn't think of them necessarily chronologically as separate entities. They're cursing God because of the sores of the first one, so it all sort of blends together. Now we come to the sixth bowl, which is described in verses 12, 13, 14, and then 16, because in verse 15 we have an interruption. This bowl is connected very strongly to the sixth trumpet, which we saw earlier. The image is that, I think, of the Persians, the Medes and the Persians, when they came into Babylon, uh, Darius, the king of the Medes and the Persians, in which he diverted the river Euphrates and was able to get under the wall into Babylon and to destroy Babylon. It is a story of, in a sense, the Euphrates drying up, being diverted, so that soldiers could come across and win. But, you know, I'm thinking if... If God wanted to use an imagery or an image from the Old Testament of water being stopped, people going across on dry land, boy, I can think of two right off the top of my head, the Red Sea and the Jordan River. I mean, why does he pick something that has nothing? I mean, why, why pick the Babylonians? I mean, the Medes and the Persians in Babylon. I mean, why does he do that? Well, because the Red Sea 
and the Jordan River are examples of God's intervening on behalf of his people. Now God is going to intervene in order that judgment might come against Israel. Already we've seen, uh, I believe in chapter 11, that judgment comes from the north. Judgment is seen as coming from the Euphrates. Not literally, but that's the history of Israel. The Assyrians came from that region. The Babylonians came from the Euphrates River. The Persians came from up there. In Old Testament language, if you're talking about somebody coming from the Euphrates, it's not good news. These are people who are nations that God has raised to punish his people. Assyria took the ten tribes to the north. And for all practical purposes, what we speak of them now is the ten lost tribes. Babylon took the two tribes to the south. And Jude and Benjamin were in captivity for seven years and they came back. Anything that comes from the Euphrates River in Old Testament language cannot be good. And that's why he speaks here of the kings of the east. The imagery from the Old Testament. But then we read that we see this unholy trinity of, of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet that evil spirits come out of their mouths that look like frogs. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. These spirits come out of their mouths not as an exorcism. I think we, just to be clear, because usually when we think of a demon coming out of a person, the person is, the demon has been exorcised. Here it is, the demon is exorcising, if you wish. The demons are now, through miraculous signs and through words, are convincing the world to rebel against God. I don't know that I found an answer to my satisfaction. Why frogs? We do know that the second plague on Israel were frogs. I'm not a particular lover of frogs. Um, you know, various commentators have said that they're slimy and gross and all that. I'm not sure that that's what John is trying to get across here. But the fact is, they are described or they are pictured as frogs coming out of the mouths of these three. By the way, the mouths of the three, dragon, beast, and prophet, that's come up before. Uh, this, this, this issue of what comes out of their mouths. Let me read to you uh, about the dragon in chapter 12. Then from his mouth... The serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. So we've already seen something devastating coming out of the mouth of the dragon. The beast in chapter 13, verse 6, he opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. And then the second beast or the false prophet, we are told, Spoke like a dragon. That is, lies and deception. That's what comes out of the mouth of the false prophet. Here, it isn't simply speaking, these, these spirits perform miraculous signs. And the reason is they want to gather people together to fight against God on the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. Paul wrote about this, by the way, in 2 Thessalonians 2. Let me read to you. The coming of the lawless one, we would say the beast, will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. 
What is it that they want to do with the dragon and the beast and the false prophet? What is, what is their agenda? Uh, this is where the Old Testament is so helpful. Psalm number two. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. Uh, the work of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet is to get the world together to reject God and to reject his anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ. They want to make war against him to throw off his authority, to be free of his authority. We will not have this man to rule over us. But they fail to recognize the truth of what is. The lamb is already victorious. He is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah, that he has triumphed. Well, in verse number 15, we have this interruption. I mean, John is going along with the sixfold, and then all of a sudden we have this interruption. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. The language comes in part from what Jesus says in the Gospels, but it comes also in part from what we've already seen in the book of Revelation. In speaking of the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which would happen 40 years after his death, Jesus spoke of coming like a thief. And as Jesus put it, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch. It would not have let his house be broken into. That is, if you're aware, if you know something's going to happen, then you may in fact prevent it from happening. But it's because you don't know that that's when the thief is going to come in that he is able to do so. It is because of the blindness of God's enemies that they don't recognize that judgment is coming. What would seem so obvious to other people, well, yes, judgment is coming. To other people, they're oblivious, they don't realize it. It's like a thief breaking in in the middle of the night. The imagery of the thief is also used, as I said earlier in the book of Revelation, in chapter 3, the church in Sardis. I know your deeds, Jesus says. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you do not know at what time I will come to you. In other words, if you're out of it, if you're not aware of what's going on, then the coming of Christ will be like a thief. It'll be unexpected. It's like, what was that? I, I, I didn't know that that was coming. Jesus says that they are to stay awake. But there's more. John says here, Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. This, by the way, is the third beatitude in the book of Revelation. Beatitude, blessed is. This is the third time we see this in this book. There's a connection with the letter to Sardis, the church in Sardis, and the church in Laodicea. In the first case, the call to wake up, here to stay awake, strengthen what remains. The second, to keep one's clothes on so as not to be naked. Let me read you the letter to Sardis. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. 
he who overcomes will be like them dressed in white. And then to the church in Laodicea, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. This third beatitude says, listen, if you are a child of God, if you stay awake, if you keep with you the righteousness of Christ, you are in fact blessed. But now the sixth bowl continues in verse number 16. Then they gathered the kings together in the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. We now return to the idea of the demons coming out of the mouths of this unholy trinity and persuading people to gather together against God and his anointed. This passage is perhaps one of the best known uh, in the book of Revelation. If not the passage, then certainly certainly the word Armageddon. In fact, if any of you watched TV last night on TV, they had the movie Armageddon. Armageddon is used generally in the culture to describe the end of the world, a great catastrophe that is about to happen, the end of all things. It may surprise you to learn, and it certainly did me, that this is the only place in the Bible where we find the word Armageddon. It's only mentioned one time. This is it. And it's mentioned only in this verse. It's not mentioned twice. It's only mentioned once. Armageddon. And I mean, I was struck because it's become so much part of common usage. You know, oh, it's Armageddon. It's the end of the world. It's only mentioned here. It may also surprise you to know that there is no such place as Armageddon. In fact, the name is problematic. It means literally Mount Megiddo. Well, if you know the Old Testament, Megiddo is not a mountain. It's a valley. It's a plain. We have the San Fernando Valley. It would be equivalent of saying Mount San Fernando. We don't have a Mount San Fernando. We have a valley. We have a plain. We don't have a mountain. And so why is it that God would refer to what at least human understanding is is a critical event in human history, Armageddon? Why would he use a name like Mount Megiddo? Well, you know, if you have a plain and if you have a valley, you probably have mountains nearby. And the nearest mountain to Megiddo is Mount Carmel. That means something. Mount Carmel was where Elijah had his contest with the prophets of Baal, where God sent down fire to burn up the sacrifice. Megiddo is a place of victories, But more than that, in in Jewish culture, a place of catastrophic defeats. Um, The last one, I think, that sticks out in Jewish thinking is that when King Josiah, who was a godly man, decided to confront Pharaoh Necho, who was actually just sort of passing through town on his way up north, and, and Josiah got involved in something he shouldn't have, and he was killed. And I think it is this second event, this catastrophic defeat, because after Josiah died, this righteous king, Judah just spiraled into idolatry and did not recover until after uh, the time of the exile. It's interesting that Zechariah the prophet, when speaking of the Messiah, will use the image of Megiddo. Let me read to you. 
and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. So obviously this is the messianic period that's coming. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great, like the weeping of Hadon Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn. Why Armageddon? Why Mount Megiddo? It is God confronting false religion. It is judgment as we see in the valley of Megiddo. In the language of Psalm 2, the world gathers against the Lord's anointed. They fail to recognize that he is Lord. Let me continue from Psalm 2. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Therefore, be wise, you kings. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Those who reject him will be destroyed. But John is speaking to something very specifically, not a specific battle, but a specific judgment. And I think this is all sort of brought together in the seventh and final bowl in verses 17 through 20. When the final bowl is poured out, the seventh bowl, it is done with the authority of God. Because out of the temple and from the throne, we hear it is done. It's a done deal. It will happen. One need not wonder, it is, in fact, an accomplished fact. Several aspects of this passage might remind you of the crucifixion. The earthquake, the darkness, the statement, it is done. We hear Jesus saying, it is finished. But I don't think this is what John has in mind. Rather, he's going back to when the covenant was instituted. He's going back to Sinai. God came to Sinai with thunder and lightning, darkness, and there he gave his covenant to his people. But they have broken the covenant, and now it is being taken away from them. And listen what the writer to the Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews, to the Jews, says. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape who refused, or when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. That expression, by the way, is from the book of Haggai, the prophet in the Old Testament. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken. That is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What's being said here? The old covenant is coming to an end. The temple, the sacrificial system, that which can be shaken, that which can be removed is going to be removed. 
and it will be replaced with something that cannot be shaken. Do you remember the words of Jesus? I will, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It cannot be shaken. It cannot be removed. But to have a new covenant, the old one has to be taken out. And that is what is being described here. John describes it as a severe earthquake, one like which there has never been since the world was created. For your thinking, for your memory, seven times in the book of Revelation we read of earthquakes. I think really emphasizing the covenantal dimension. The language here is similar to what happened when this hailstorm came on Egypt. And Moses writes, it was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Here, this is the worst earthquake people had ever experienced. And the great city was split into three parts. The great city is Jerusalem. And the next verse referred to as Babylon the Great. Again, there's much more to say here, but if you go to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 5, Ezekiel was told to shave his head with a sword. An interesting story. Take a sharp sword and shave your head and then divide the hair into three parts. Speaking of God's judgment that would come. Here the city is divided into three parts. And I think John's readers would immediately make the connection with Ezekiel's passage. But in... This is a difficult passage, but I think the one thing that jumped out at me that I'm like, I don't get that part, is in verse number 19. The great city split into three parts, and the city of the nations collapsed. That is, the city of the Gentiles collapsed. I was thinking, well, that doesn't make sense, because, yes, Israel broke the covenant, God will judge Jerusalem, the temple will be destroyed, that's it, the old covenant is gone, it's that which can be shaken has been taken away. But why the city of the cities of the Gentiles? That's, and in some sense, they don't have anything to do with this. They're not members of the covenant. You know, the covenant people here, that, that's Jerusalem. Why these other people? The old covenant specified that Israel would be a nation of priests. Israel was to be mediators. They were to be mediators between God and the Gentiles. They were to be the light of God surrounded by a world of darkness in the Gentile world. They were to be a missionary nation. They did not. The old covenant is the old world order. And the old world order is going to be destroyed. And it was in 70 AD. It doesn't just affect the Jews. It affects the whole world. I find it interesting that here we are told that God remembered Babylon the Great. It's one of my favorite expressions in the Old Testament because it's usually used positively. When Naomi hears that God has remembered and visited his people, she goes home. God's remembering is seen as a wonderful thing, but not always. God remembers what Babylon, what Jerusalem has done. And he pours out his wrath. His wrath is poured out in such a way that the the islands want to run away. The nations, I mean the mountains want to run away. So great is his wrath. Huge hailstones come down. And what do people do? Do they repent? Do they say, 
we have violated the covenant. We, we, have, we are in breach of the covenant. No, they cursed God. They cursed God because of the plague. So, as we get ready to leave this place and go home, what can we take from this passage that would be of any benefit to us? Not only in our thinking, but in our living. I think, first of all, I would remind you that we should not be embarrassed by the judgments that God is pouring out, or to read about them, or to talk about them. As I've said before, I think many people who think they know about God, who have some knowledge of Scripture, think that such, such actions are beneath God. They would rather think of God as more sophisticated. That, you know, now that we know that you shouldn't spank children, you know, you give them timeouts. So in the same way, God doesn't send plagues and, and judgments. That God is far more sophisticated than that. That God has grown up with the rest of us. No. As we are reminded, his judgments are just and true. He promised Israel, if you follow the terms of the covenant, I will bless you. And if you violate the terms of the covenant, I will send cursing. Don't you like it when someone keeps their word? I think we like it when it's something good. I don't think that we like it when it's something bad. No, but there is something very, I think, comforting to know that God does keep his word. God is holy. His judgments are holy. And the covenant is important. In closing, I want to read to you from Exodus 19. This is when Israel met God at Sinai for the covenant to be instituted. Toward the end of the chapter, we read, On the, third, or on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. What was it that God said to Israel earlier in the chapter? Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God said, all the nations are mine. But you're the nation of priests. You're the ones who have the truth. You're the ones who have the covenant. You are the ones who are to keep the covenant and to spread the news of who God is. Well, now we go back to Revelation. In the first chapter... As John begins his book, this is what he writes. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Israel failed. 
by God's grace, we are now the new Israel. We are priests. We are to serve God. We are to serve those around us. A covenant is not a light thing. Those of us who are older, and there's some here even older than myself, can remember a time when a person's word was their bond. Sadly, that doesn't often seem to be the case today. Now you've got to sign a contract, and even then people get out of the contract. When we enter into covenant with God, it's not a small thing. When we say to God, I will be your child, that is not a small thing. And when we read of the judgments that came on Israel, we should take them seriously. And our obligations to be faithful to what God has called us to do should take that seriously as well. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you have called us by your grace to be your people. You've said that you would be our God. We would be your people. We are your servants. We have been purchased by the blood of your Son. This is not a small or light thing something to be treated casually. Help us to remember, to consider that there are consequences for breaking your law, for breaking your covenant. And yet we would confess freely that every day we seem to do so. Every day we want to replace you with another God, one that we can control, one that we have created. We are like the kings described in Psalm 2. Though we are your people, oftentimes we rebel against you. May we See the truth of it. Rebellion is not a small thing. Disobedience is not a small thing. There are no small sins. Father in heaven, we've talked about a lot of things today. I pray that by your grace, you would bring them back to us by your spirit, bit by bit in the coming week, to consider and meditate on. Again, we give thanks this day as we remember various lives, your faithfulness, the anniversaries that we have celebrated, reminders of your faithfulness. Pray for those that are not with us that you would bring them back safely. And now we pray for our missionary, Faye Woods. We commit her to your care. We know that she has much to offer. We pray that you would protect her and give her strength that she might do your work that needs to be done there in Baguio City. And now we ask that your grace and your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. May we be lights in a world of darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together?
face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.